Hello, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I talk with writers and other creative people about their work and how and why they create fantastic and mysterious places for us to explore. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Juliet Wade, author of Transgressions of Power, published by DAW, February 23rd, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm very happy to be here. So first, um, as a writer, I'm sure you have a lot of ideas rolling around in your head, and this is uh, part of a series, so I'm just curious how this idea rose above the rest to become a book in a series. This was a... It's actually a little bit of an interesting story. This was something where I had a lot of ideas around this idea. And uh, because I have a very large historical context for the Varan world in my brain. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew I knew where Mazes of Power was. And I knew where some of the books after were. Um, and as I was going along, all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, something really important happened <laughs> in between there. I have to figure out what it is. <laughs> uh -huh. um, yeah. And, and then the, the, the closer I started looking at it, the more, more fascinated by the idea I became. So mm -hmm. that was how, that was how this book came to be. Oh, okay. So then tell me about the um, sort of the basics of the book, the protagonist, the uh, setting, the conflict. So, this is a book that takes place in my world of Varan, and in Varan, people live in eight underground cities, mm. um, and they're not—they're—they're they're humans, but this is not Earth, mm. um, and it's sort of like a secondary world where humans live, and um, they're in a period of decline after a technological peak, mm. and so that's kind of the setting. Uh, most of the book takes place in two cities, the city of Pelismara, which is the capital city, um, which is this big limestone cavern, lots of layers, um, and it has lights on the ceiling and everything else. And, and some of it occurs in the city of Salimna, which is a city built on two sides of a river cavern. So all the buildings are stacked up on yeah. sides and they have, you know, roof transports that take you down the city and stuff like that. Um, okay. And uh, the protagonist is named Della. Uh, she's a noblewoman, um, happily married to uh, a man who happens to have as his brother the, the um, very troubled, I'll call him very troubled, heir to the throne, <laughs> a man by the name of Nicantor, who is um, bound and determined that he's going to take their family uh, which is the first family uh, of out of the 12 great families of the Grobel, who are the nobility, mm -hmm. um, and, and bring it to the forefront of power in, in Varan and make sure that it stays there for as long as he can possibly manage it. Mm -hmm. um, and because he has no qualms about harming people in order to accomplish this, uh, that means that Tagret is actually quite constrained in his ability to act. And so, in fact, it's Della who ends up having more ability to influence things because she's not entangled in the day-to-day -day struggle between the two brothers. Mm -hmm. um, so she's very important. She wants she wants to leave Pelismara and go to Selimna and try to 
change their society. Their society is a seven-layer caste society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the caste society causes uh, enormous problems for everyone who lives in it. Yeah. Um, but they've been doing this for so long that they have no concept. This is not exactly how people are. And so as divorced from the experience of the lower castes as Della is, she has ideas about how she wants people to be taken care of better in their society. So mm-hmm. um, that's kind of her goal. But at the same time, she's having to work with uh, Nicantor and his goals for the first family in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's one of the main characters. Another main character is uh, a young man by the name of Adon, who is Nicantor's youngest brother. And and he's a, he's a kid who who is very much doesn't feel like he belongs anywhere mm-hmm. and he um definitely doesn't like nicandor but nicandor has a lot of designs on him mm-hmm. um as someone who is young and and represents the first family you might be able to take on a position of power in the future so the book is uh labeled as um post-apocalyptic you know galactic galactic empire is that is that properly <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. That, that's a question I want to. I'm not sure where people get the idea that it's post-apocalyptic or that it's a galactic empire. <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's sociological science fiction, mm-hmm. and um, and it's secondary world. So it is. This is not an Earth colony. This is not, uh, you know, a space empire. Um, mm-hmm. There's. I mean, people are aware that space exists, but they live in underground <laughs> cities, okay. so yeah. they uh, they don't spend a lot of time looking at in their telescopes if they have any. <laughs> yeah, I like to ask authors about that because you know they get pigeonholed, and and I want them to be able to explain really what they feel their book is about, and not just what. The, sure. You know. Well, I think a lot of people see the the technological peak and decline aspect of the story and go, oh, this must be some kind of post-apocalypse. But it's really not. It's mm-hmm. it's more um, it's more looking at how power structures get formed and and the influence that they have on people. Mm-hmm. And um, and so yeah, I mean, once people get tangled up, you get these major historical events that occur. And one of the things I'm interested in doing is actually looking at how real people and their relationships influence major historical events. Mm-hmm. Did you do um, any research for, for the book into any of the topics that you touch on? Oh, uh, well, so I've been building the world for uh, most of my life, actually. Mm-hmm. And so there has been a great deal of research that went into it, um, but not as much for, you know, this book specifically, I would say. Okay. Um I think the the major research that I did for this book specifically was um, speaking uh, with friends of mine who have uh, experience in military or firefighting settings because mm. the focal caste in Transgressions of Power is the Arisen officer caste. Mm. And one of the main characters is uh, a woman named Arisen Malin who works on the surface protecting food harvests from these little floating sparks that are called wisps Mm. and um, they are what make it impossible for people to build cities on the surface in Varn. 
And so um, she actually, her job is as a sharpshooter, trying to protect people from getting attacked by these things while they are trying to grow food Hmm. (laughs) for the people who live underground. Um, But because of events that are outside of her control, she ends up crossing paths with McCantor and he decides that um, that she's a talented person who would be very useful for his purposes. Mm-hmm. And so her life takes a major, major turn into some pretty dangerous places. So just to dig into sort of the world that you've built, um, what, why seven casts? Like, how did you come up with the, that, the stratification that you have? Sure. So, um, uh, well, I knew, I knew from the start that there was stratification because, uh, Stratification was one of the phenomena, social phenomena that I look at. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, so this is also related to the research question because my background is in um, anthropology and linguistics and Japanese. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, one of the things that I had studied was the Japanese Edo era caste system. And so I was looking at that when I was designing the initial set of castes. In fact, the Varan caste system is not congruent with the Edo era Japanese caste system, but it has some similar aspects, like the fact that merchants are next to lowest within the system Mm -hmm. and below, for example, the farmers. Uh, So farmers and miners are above merchants. and, Mm -hmm. And I guess the closest thing that you would have to maybe samurai would be the Arisen. Um, and and that but the nobility is more like the imperial family itself, mm-hmm. um, which so it's a larger group than the imperial family ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so that's that's where some of the basic distinctions came in. The Imbati caste, which is the servant caste, is a caste that I created myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know that's one of the places where it departs from the structure of of that of that inspirational system. I'm speaking with Juliet Wade, author of Transgressions of Power. You can find more information about her work at julietwade.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So is it, how big a population does this world have? Is it, is it pretty limited or are there other, other systems they're vying with or in competition with? Well, in fact, they're, they're pretty isolated. Um, the, this capital city has 400,000 people mm-hmm. and, and Salimna, which is the second largest city has 200,000. So they're not a really small population, mm-hmm. um, but um, because the, the the main population pressure is actually on the nobility because mm-hmm. um, they are in the process of going through a decline. Their caste 
the laws of the of the um, the laws of the caste system actually prevent people from marrying outside their caste. And if you marry outside your caste, um, you drop. You can't actually rise in caste. So, of course, over time, <laughs> this means that the nobility has a small population to begin with. And then over time, it just gradually keeps losing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the major problems that they're coping with um, and continuing to cope with, and in fact, it becomes a very personal issue for, for Della in Transgressions of Power, is, is the global decline. Um, and basically, a lot of them are inbred, and many of them have uh, genetic diseases, and um, and they have a very unhealthy way of, of responding to that demographic pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they oppress their women in a way that other castes in Varn do not, mm-hmm. um, and very concerned with with whether people are having the proper number of children. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it leads to some homophobia and various kinds of social issues in the nobility yeah. that you might not see and in fact you don't see in some of the other groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like, um, yeah, you touched on some issues I was curious to ask about. So it sounds like it's a very well-rounded look at, at all the issues that, that would arise from something like this. I'm trying to make it as... Um, sociologically and psychologically grounded as possible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, part of my goal is to have this very, very alternate social system be like almost like a filter for some of the issues that we're confronting in in the real world. Mm-hmm. So, I want to see if I can, you know, if it happens here, it should happen there, but we just don't necessarily know where that issue might crop up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in some ways, writing novels in Varan is like a continual process of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I'll say, oh, you know, what does a pharmacy look like? <laughs> and, and, of course, the first thing you have to figure out is who's there? What, you know, how do they perceive the role of a pharmacist? Is this person uh, considered to be a civil servant? In which case, they would be a member of the Mbati caste. Mm-hmm. Or are they a doctor or, a, you know, a technical expert? In which case, they would be in the artisan caste, which is called mm-hmm. the cartoonist. Right. So little tiny settings and details will sometimes have odd wrinkles that that um, that I need to follow and be true to in order to understand the story. Yeah. How uh, the violence that that occurs in the story, you talked about the one brother who doesn't worry about harming and I assume killing people. Is it openly done or is it more is the violence sort of an undercurrent? Well, that's an interesting question. So so um, I. I see Varen as a place of structure and law mm-hmm. and much in a, in a similar way, I would say um, to the way that, that um, the U S is a place of, of structure and law. We expect certain kinds of things not to be done mm-hmm. and yet we see them done a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that, in a similar way, there's violence being done in Varen and, you know, there's there's a whole assassins group, <laughs> mm. and it's not a it's not like a, a big assassins guild or anything like that. It's sort of more of a small select contractor uh, organization. Mm-hmm. And um, you'd think, well, why is that allowed to keep going? Right? Um, everybody knows it's illegal. Um, and you know, if you were to get caught using a, an assassin like this, you'd get in trouble. Mm-hmm. 
there are certain kinds of things that people aren't going to pursue yeah. um, legally, right? And so one of the questions is, you know, when there are people doing violence, where do you draw where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how are how are groups like this assassins group allowed to continue? Mm-hmm. Um, and and for whose purposes, right? Right. So. Okay. Let me ask about uh, some of the things that inspire you. Um, what mm-hmm. sort of books, music, um, shows, movies, you know, inspire your, your imagination? Well, I have always, always loved the works of Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find her vision really fascinating, and I find her views um, and her insights into social structure really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that she was my first inspiration. Um, I also absolutely love the works of N.K. Jemison. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes into some fascinating places just in terms of world building and also in terms of, of social structure that I find really marvelous. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of my favorites. I also love Anne Leckie's work mm-hmm. um, for some similar reasons. One of the things that I especially like about uh, Anne Leckie's work is the way that she keeps her focus on the lives of individuals, even as she is expounding on this massive uh, intergalactic uh, conflict, Mm -hmm. right? You never feel like you're just seeing chess pieces move. Um, You're always experiencing the lives of people who are, who are within those events. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some of my uh, major inspirations yeah, you know, I've always I've always liked Studio Ghibli films, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure exactly. I don't think they have a, as much of a direct influence as maybe a sort of a sensibility for things that that visuals that I like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if the book were to have a soundtrack, let's say, or made into a film, what what sort of feel would it have? You know, what 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 uh, kind of pace and um, aesthetic ah so um well i visualize it quite a lot um and one of the things that that i think is um would be fun to see is the way that people in this world are actually very very colorful Hmm. and uh they love to they love to wear colors some of the colors are actually legislated as marks for casts like the color red is the color of the arisen cast and that's one of the reasons why the book is uh red Mm -hmm. um but um so you've got these legislated colors but you also have you know the the nobles tend to wear jewel colors um it's just that nothing it nothing is typically inspired by nature because they don't have a lot of exposure to nature and they find the idea of it rather alarming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I think that one of the things that I've always imagined maybe seeing one day would be uh, a crowd scene um, where you could actually look at how all of the different styles and, and, and cast marks and everything come together and create an interesting new social dynamic mm-hmm. Um Everything would be, I mean, I, sometimes people say, well, you know, that, that would be easy or hard to do. And I think that the underground cities would actually be 
you know, there'd be some CGI involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, it is a it is a high technology place. People are are using maglev uh, skimmers uh, yeah. to, or at least the rich are, mm-hmm. to to go around the city of Palismara and go up these limestone rampways. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's got a mixture though because um, you have a lot of things that are very modern, and then you have some things that are very old. I am fascinated with history and architecture, and mm-hmm. so. Um, one of the things that I really love is how in a place like, for example, Kyoto, Japan, where I lived for uh, a year, um, you've got these very, very old structures, mm-hmm. um, like the temples and the, and the shrines and these hidden little things that you know have been there for probably, you know, umpteen hundred years, right? Yeah. Um, and then... And then next to them, a telephone pole with wires on it going somewhere. Yeah. And so there's this really interesting sort of mixed uh, historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the global, the nobility tend to live in these sort of very fancy places, right? But the fanciest place of all is the Eminence's residence, where a lot of them live. And the Eminence's residence is actually very, very old. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 750 years old. And, and so in fact, the, the highest, you know, the, the chicest place to live is this very old seeming building, mm-hmm. um, that nonetheless has very nice lighting and all this nice stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of a, a classical building of the sort that you would see museums in, or, you know, your city hall would be in this style. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just a few blocks away, you've got these districts with everything made out of steel and glass and, and lots of electric lights and there's neon and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah. so, you know, you've got these uh, interesting contrasts. So those are the, some of the things that I would really like to see. How old is the, this society? Like their recorded history, how far back does it go? So, um, they're, they are aware of uh, approximately the last 400 years of their history. Mm -hmm. Um, But their history goes back probably about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Um, At least, you know, in this location. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. When you were describing sort of the, the, if you were to see the crowds, you know, from high up, I was wondering, you know, would you see the cast, would the cast be like physically, divided from each other like clumping or would you have some mixing at least as for commerce purposes or you know what would be the blend if lots of them were together it depends on the context mm-hmm. but so for example the merchant caste tends to run these um these mercantile districts where you have restaurants and you have places to go but of course you know you could have an artist's studio mixed in there as well mm-hmm. and the customers could be any sort of people. So depending on where you found it in the city, you might have, um, you might have servant caste people, even nobles. Nobles are actually probably the least likely to be publicly seen Mm. unless you're really close to the neighborhoods where they live. Um, but, but yeah, I think they tend to clump on the small scale. Like, you know, your, your party of five people that you're going around with probably tend to be the same same cast as you on the other hand with nobles they tend each to have their own personal servants Mm -hmm. 
So you tend to see nobles are always accompanied by servants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, uh, only rarely would you see, you know, officers accompanied by servants. They tend to hang out with each other. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, anybody might go into a merchant's shop or restaurant and, and enjoy themselves there. So. Do you have any situations? So you said, so they can't, the cast can't intermarry between casts, but you could have people having, you know, ill, you know, affairs and, and, you know, illegitimate children. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just curious if you explore much of that. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you've re- if you've read Mazes of Power, mm-hmm. um, you will know that that actually does happen. But mm-hmm. it's 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 more rare than you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, the servants have have these very strict ideas about how they're supposed to interact with their employers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there are some there are some dalliances and some some mysteries. I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the things about Varen is it's full of secrets. And hmm. that's one of the reasons why um, I've been so thrilled to see the cover art that um, Adam Auerbach did for, for both Maces of Power and Transgressions of Power, where there are these layers and layers of sort of color and then silhouettes peeking in from these various places or, mm-hmm. or being in the background because there are lots and lots of layers in Varen and every layer has secrets. And people have information like who their parents are that they might want to keep secret from mm. from everyone around them, or um, you know they they have plans that they don't want to ma- they want to make sure nobody from a different family actually hears about, or um, that sort of thing. So mm. secrets are definitely a currency of sorts, and not an official one, but <laughs> mm-hmm. right. but um, yeah, they're a big deal. Uh, in this world. So let me uh, turn to um, how you do your writing, um, your process. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, in your opinion, anything out of the ordinary or different from other writers that you do to uh, complete drafts or your final work, your final draft? Well, I don't know. I don't know. People have such a variety of different techniques (laughs) that I'm sure I'm not entirely unique. Um, but I do tend to, I am a person who plans <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. and I, so I'll plan everything out. Um, and I'll say, Oh, I think this is what's going to happen here. Part of the reason why, uh, I plan is because in order to get the language, right, I have to kind of hijack my own brain. And this is probably the most, the thing that I would say is, is probably unique about the way that I write. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we do linguistically is subconscious mm-hmm. and especially the social aspects of the language. And so as I'm going into a situation, I try to have my points of view be as close to the characters as possible as I can possibly make them. Mm-hmm. And so I want to try to give the impression that you're inside a person's head with all of the experiences and cultural biases and everything else that that person has. So in order to be able to write it in a way that reflects that, I have to think through who the person is, whether they have any past experiences that 
are relevant to the current context because I don't tend to info dump very much. I tend to have people remember things that are relevant to them in this situation when it happens. Um, it's sort of a an immersion feel, hmm. not a here, let me explain this to you feel. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I need to know a lot of the social aspects of the situation before I start writing a scene and kind of get myself into the headspace of the character so that the character will say things that are true to who they are mm -hmm. because the different casts, each one has a different culture and they have different values and they have different, you know, aspirations and they have different kinds of things that they're told they're supposed to achieve. And every person within the cast is kind of like, okay, these are the things I should probably be trying to achieve, but I'm not sure how I feel about that. Hmm. Um, and it's becoming more difficult because I'm interacting with these other people who are making it more difficult. And yeah. How can I be true to myself and also be a good person and also obey? And, you know, so that's maybe a servant's view. Hmm. Whereas, um, you know, for, for example, Aris and Malin in Transgressions of Power, she's going, you know, my friends are up fighting on the surface right now. And I'm down here uh, being used as a nobleman's tool. And how can I get out of this? How did this happen to me? <laughs> mm -hmm. Do I have any recourse? How can I be moral and still do what I'm being ordered to do? Yeah. Um, so those are some of the questions that she grapples with in the transgression. I can imagine the... Um... The, the characters that, that are most sympathetic probably, I have a feeling they carry a lot of guilt because there's this society seems to have a lot going on that people in power can feel guilty about. Yeah, there are things people feel guilty about. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Or guilt, but also shame, you mm -hmm. know. For example, um, Della has a scene where she's trying really hard to learn about some of the lower cats so that she can figure out how to help them. Mm -hmm. And she goes to a medical center in the city of Salina. And it's basically the first really mixed cast environment that she's walked into, where it's not like everybody has their role, they're doing their thing, and you're not supposed to cross the boundaries. Everybody's going to sit in this waiting room, and they're clumped up in groups in these various areas, but there are lots of different types of people here. And she sees an empty chair um, between an undercast man and a woman from the Venori laborer caste. Mm -hmm. And she sits there and tries to convince herself to sit down in that chair so that she might have the opportunity of talking to one of those people. Mm -hmm. And she can't do it. And when the nurse comes out and says, can I help you? She says, you know, you should really help that guy over there. <laughs> mm. You know, he's, he's bleeding. You should really help him. Mm. And so she gets medical help for the undercast man, but then he ends up leaving so she can't interact with him. And she is left going, why did I do that? Couldn't I have just sat? Why couldn't I just sit down in that chair? Mm. Um, and so on her second attempt, she actually sits down next to the labor cast woman and starts talking with her. Mm -hmm. um, 
But this is kind of the internal struggle that she has as a person who has grown up without much interaction at all with um, people below the level of servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe artists, definitely artists, but um, but below that, no. I'm speaking with Juliet Wade, author of Transgressions of Power. You can find more information about her work at julietwade.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interview so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Do you have any sort of, and maybe this is, well, do you have any sort of checklist that helps you keep track, you know, of, because you have so many different people with, as you say, different sort of, um, their psyches are different, their, their subconsciouses are different. How do you sort of track to make sure everyone's sort of on the right path? Is it just a memory thing or? Um, well, so I've been working with this uh, world for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and so I kind of live there uh, on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think that the closer I get to a character, the more my sense of how they fit into their cast and how their experiences have played out mm-hmm. um, becomes clear to me. Okay. And one of the things that I try to do with Byron is give people the sense that there is a lot of it and it's not, you're seeing this part of it, right? Um, but there's a lot more that could be seen if you were to go a different direction, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest, most challenging tasks for me is, is creating a character voice. Um, because character voice is exactly what you were just saying. Um, who is this person? How do they see themselves within their cast, within their society? Um, how do they see their role? What do they, what do their goals look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and how do they cope with when things go wrong? <laughs> right. right. Um, Della is a, a kind of atypical protagonist because, she is a person who has quite low self-esteem uh, surrounding her um, inability to have kids mm. or what appears to be her inability to have kids. And so physically, she's a very uncertain uh, person and she's always feeling like she's awkward and as if she has a little bit of body dysphoria. Mm. But her view on life is that there always has to be a way out of every situation. And that if you stop looking for that, then you're giving up completely. So she is actually one of the most dogged and resourceful characters that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes time to put those kinds of characters together. Mm -hmm. And so I would say 
I put a great deal of work in, especially right at the beginning of writing a book, um, to make sure I understand who the character is and how they think and what kinds of perceptions are going to be the most salient for them. Mm-hmm. How has your approach to writing changed over time since you've, you know, you've been doing it for a little bit now, so. Yeah, I have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've gotten better at it, yay. (laughs) Uh, I I feel Naren was always a very ambitious project. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I first conceived of it, I was not a writer. I was not an adult. And, and every attempt that I made at it was so obviously wrong uh, that it took me ages and ages to figure out what it was exactly that I wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. And learning about linguistics and learning about anthropology and learning about psychology, those things helped me to sort of see what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, I had to sort of practice doing it until I could do it. Um, so... So making sure that I can line up all the social cues within a piece of text so that it will come across correctly is something that took me a long time to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that my writing style is <laughs> a little different from mm-hmm. what people expect sometimes okay. um, because it is very character-based. Um But so I think that the thing that has changed the most over time is that I can have more ambitious ideas about whose viewpoints to look at Mm -hmm. um, and feel like I actually have a chance at executing it in a way that works. Okay. Okay. So you've touched already on some of the work you've done outside of writing that's, that's influenced your writing. Mm -hmm. Are there, are there any jobs or, other careers you might want to mention that that have impacted how or what you write you know i was always going to be <laughs> i was always going to be science fiction or fantasy i think i think one of the things that changed as i was studying was that i became more sciencey hmm. uh, more science focused mm-hmm. and 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 it may be one of the reasons why varin uh, reads like fantasy to a lot of people mm-hmm. even though I personally feel very strongly that it's science fiction because it it deals with technology and change and how actual human beings cope with that, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the main purposes of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think my studies have helped. I, I actually have, have learned so much just from interactions with other people um, and being involved in online discourse has taught me a lot. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very interested in social questions and 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 you know, sociolinguistic questions, and I'm always looking at things like, well, you know, how do these people talk about what they are going through, and how is that different from the way that other people who are not members of this group would talk about the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there, I don't know if I've answered your question. <laughs> you did, you did. Is there one? I guess there's one main language in this world. There... Yes, there is one main language, um, and but it has dialects mm-hmm. because the cities are actually pretty isolated, so they speak a little differently from one another. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I had the most amazing experience with the audiobook for Transgressions of Power. Oh, yeah? Um, because, yeah, because the character who does the most traveling is Della. And um, the actress who, who read Della's point of view chapters spoke with me about how I wanted the dialects to be, to be done. Mm-hmm. And she just absolutely committed to it and did a brilliant job. And I was just so amazed because I really want to make sure that these people sound like they're from different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans from different places sound different, even when you're not talking about, you know, yeah. the different languages that you find yeah. in other countries. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you overwrite and then edit back or do you underwrite and then have to bulk up your book? Oh, um, so I tend to, I, I tend uh, to write in order chronologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the reason that I do that is because it's so important for me to understand the psychology of where this person is and what they've just experienced and how that would influence their mental states. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to write something and then go back over it and add and then go back over it again and add and then go back over it again and add before I even move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel that once I have the voice kind of layered up, <laughs> uh, then I have an easier time getting into it without having to do all the layering mm-hmm. the next time I have to revisit it. Oh, okay. Sometimes yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I don't tend to pare back a lot. Um, I think I got trained early on to be very, stripped down and minimalist in, in, and that sounds funny because my books are rather long, but I want to make sure that every piece that's in there is doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I'm not, you know, if, if, if I'm describing, so for example, the character Adon in Transgressions of Power, he loves fashion, but he doesn't just love fashion because he loves fashion. Mm-hmm. He loves fashion because of what you can say with fashion. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an art form for him, but it's also a form of communication. So, so as you know, he and his family are going over to visit the Mbati Service Academy for a special event, saying, well, you know, clearly Lady Salome is taking this seriously because her dress looks like it's plates of armor. <laughs> okay. And, 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 you know, Speaker Fedrin doesn't want to dignify the occasion with, you know, by wearing something too fancy or formal. So he's always remarking on and describing people's fashion choices, but as they reflect the person's attitude towards what they're about to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool stuff. I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. So a whimsical question now, um, when you mm-hmm. were younger, was there a power technology or fictional setting that you yearned for or to be part of? Almost everything I read, actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, uh, there was a period when I was very into um, imagining myself living in Narnia when I was very hmm. small. Okay. Um, because my parents were reading me the Narnia books. Um, uh, I love putting myself into fictional places. Um and just sort of getting the feel of them. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think if there was one in particular that I really wanted to be a part of. Um, 
gosh, I loved, uh, I loved Patricia McKillop's Riddle Master of Head series. Mm-hmm. And, and it felt so real to me. There was another book, um, Red Moon, Black Mountain by Joy Chen, that I mm-hmm. felt like I was walking around in a daze for days while I was reading, while I was reading it. Yeah. Because I tend to sort of, I think I have a natural tendency to immerse mm-hmm. when I'm reading. Uh, less so now that I'm a writer, I'm a little more, uh, a little hard to turn off the editor brain yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, but there are still things that, that completely suck me in. And when I can achieve that, I just love it. Love it. Like uh, N.K. Jemison's The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, yeah. um, really loved it. So did you have, did, was there any world you immersed yourself in that, that at, at some point just became too much for you to, to handle maybe some kind of horror or something that you had to, you know, I, um, I'm a person who avoids horror just because I immerse so much <laughs> and, and I value my sleep. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't mind dark and thorny kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when it crosses the border into horror, I, I'm, I just tend to avoid it. There are very, very few exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying, I'm, 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 I'm looking to the left yeah. here cause all of my Your books library. are here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trigger some... that, um, I think, I think some of the Octavia Butler, uh, books were, uh, just fascinating, but also, you know, um, a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's part of the point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to read something that's really challenging in a world that you wouldn't want necessarily to live in, but that you can definitely uh, experience and learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. Do you, yeah. do you, was there anything you read as a kid that maybe um, seemed very strange or unusual, but now as an adult you've read it again and, and understood it differently or in a much clearer way? So, um, I remember, uh, this is a, I remember, t- uh, reading the, the Earthsea trilogy by Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And I read it at least three times. Uh, and I'm going to say at least three times because I know I read it more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but relevant to this question, there were three occasions on which I came back to it or yeah, I came back to it after a considerable gap of time. And when I read it the first time, I thought the first book was the scariest. Mm-hmm. And then when I read it the second time, the second book was definitely the scariest. Uh-huh. And then when I read it the third time, the third book was definitely the scariest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think that, um, I mean, I've read quite a bit about, about reading, research and and a lot of what we experience in the book actually comes from our own minds mm-hmm. right the, the language of a book is not is not sort of being dripped into our head with a tube it's it's we're taking in the words and they're evoking experience from what we have within us as as a sort of a linguistic and and emotional resources i suppose you could say yeah. um and so that definitely was one of the series that brought that home to me in a big way hmm. is that depending on what I brought to the book, the book brought very different things to me. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Yeah, that's pretty. Okay. As far as this book, where did you have any difficulties finishing it or, or getting it published? I imagine it was a pretty smooth process. Well, so interestingly, hmm. <laughs> it was very, very difficult for me to get editor eyes on Mazes of Power. Hmm. Um, a lot of people have this experience. Um, but when I sold Mazes of Power, I sold Transgressions of Power at the same time hmm. without having written it at the time. I think I had written about eight chapters when I sold it. I was okay. like, oh, this is great. Uh, super great. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of work to do now. <laughs> and so I didn't feel, I think I was never really worried about whether I was going to finish it, though I was concerned about whether I was going to finish it within the time allotted. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, uh, my biggest concern, I think, was whether I was going to be able to capture the story in a way that had the emotional amplitude that I wanted. Hmm. Because I had spent such a long time living with mazes of power um, that I felt all the emotions in it very deeply. And, um, and I was concerned about whether I would understand the characters and transgressions of power the way I really wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, whether, whether the things that happened to them would be able to have it, it, the, the feeling of impact that I wanted them to have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy to say, though, <laughs> that I think I think it worked in the end. Mm -hmm. um, that I, even though I didn't have a ton of time, I really felt like I could get deep into the characters, and I really felt like I found um, I found some emotional things that were very meaningful within that context. Did you let some of this, um, you know, as you figured out what the characters, you know, their goals, motivations, where they were headed, did did the character did you let the characters lead you into different plot lines than you expected, or would you just adjust stuff within their background or something like that to make your plan fit fit them or have them fit your plan? I, there's not really an either or answer to that question. It's all kind of interrelated. Uh, I tend to I tend to see the major events mm -hmm. on a certain level, and those don't typically change a lot. If you were going to say sort of the grand plot aspects, mm -hmm. um, I know those in advance, and they don't typically change. Uh, if if my characters don't seem like they're interested in executing them, I change the characters. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, the character has to has to be well suited to the story that they are living in, mm. right? And so, if I change something about the character, that means I'm changing them as a person. It's a big deal for me. <laughs> um, but at the same time, what happens on on the text level, what happens moment by moment, is really growing out of who the characters are and and what they do. So. So I would say the sort of political historical events in Transgressions of Power don't get changed by the characters very much at all. Mm -hmm. But how the relationships grow um, and the reasons behind why people do what they do and the choices that they make, those change a lot. And in fact, I can think of um, Adon changed a great deal. Uh, I, my understanding of who he was and the kinds of choices he was making and where he was going, those changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, 
as I understood where he was going through the story mm-hmm. and um, Malin as well. Um, and particularly Malin and her relationship with Paris, that kept changing. Mm. <laughs> and I would go, I'd go a little further and well, that, you know, that thing I thought of doesn't make any sense at this point. So, <laughs> okay, let's see what happens. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I have certain things that I, I will not allow to have. And most of those are things that are sort of um, what I consider to be harmful tropes. Hmm. Um, things like uh, a marginalized person sacrificing themselves for a less marginalized person. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to do that ever. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, or, you know, there's certain kinds of certain kinds of things um you know uh a woman saying oh i don't care about myself anymore it's okay i'll just do what you want honey mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know you're not going to see people doing that a great deal i mean if they okay. if if a woman is making a decision like that then they're she's going to think it through and and make that decision very carefully mm-hmm. um understanding the costs and 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 what that means for the relationship and everything else mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I follow. I follow. What's uh, your current writing project? My current writing project is book three of The Broken Trust. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, and I am not sure if the title is finalized yet, but I'm, but I'm really enjoying writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say learning what, new characters and all that? Can you say how far into the into it you are completed, or at least the draft? You don't have to. Well, I have all of my anchor <laughs> characters anchored, okay. and um, I I am less far on it than I would like to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I can. It, it it's interesting because even though I write chronologically, um, I don't think chronologically, and so the maturity of my thoughts for the whole arc of the book are is actually getting to be really cool right now. Um, even though I'm relatively early in the word count. Okay. Okay. So where can people find you online? Do you have website or social media? I do. Uh, my website is julietway.com. Okay. And, um, I am also on Twitter and on Facebook and, um, I'm on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though I kind of don't know what to do with Instagram. So I I post (laughs) photos of my cat. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, a flower that I saw. Um, and I occasionally have, uh, you know, uh, fan art from For the Broken Trust that I, that I share. Oh, that's cool. um, much of it, I, I, I love fan art, so I've commissioned some, some stuff, which is really fun. And so you can find that on my Instagram. Okay. Um, and so I'll, yeah. sp- I'll spell your name for listeners. Um, J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-W-A-D-E.com. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And I, That's correct. And your social media, is it you use your full name or did you have to adjust it? I use my full name, at least on Twitter. I'm at Juliet Wade. Okay. Um, yep. Okay. All right. That's that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? I w- it's been a pleasure speaking with you. You too. Ah, I appreciate it. Really interesting stuff uh, to think about. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. In the next episode, I speak with Justin Penniston, comic book writer for DC Comics and independent comic Hunter Black, as well as a writer on the new Sonic TV series. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode.
Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.